Welcome to the Veterans Perspective, presented by the Michigan Veterans Affairs Agency, with your host, Director of the MVAA, Zanetta Adams. Welcome back to the Veterans Perspective. Today, we are still talking about Black History Month, but we're also talking about President's Day and how it relates to Black History Month and the many uh, accomplishments that have come since then. Joining us to talk about some of those things is Ronnie Cyrus, the Vice President of the Michigan Heroes Museum in Frankenmuth. He's going to be talking about some historical uh, Black history figures from our state. Also joining us today is Lieutenant Commander Daryl Green, Chief of Staff of Police and Public Safety at Michigan State University. You know, I enjoy having these conversations. I think the dialogue is timely and it's on point. I am so excited to be able to, to, to share this information with you. We'll be given some highlights of um, how we can continue to move the needle forward as it relates to veterans. So stick with us. We'll be right back on the Veterans Perspective. Welcome back to the Veterans Perspective. Today we're talking about President's Day during Black History Month. And our first guest on this show is no stranger. Please join me in welcoming back my friend, Ronnie Cyrus, Reserve Component Transition Assistance Advisor and the Vice President of the Michigan Heroes Museum in Frankenmuth. Just a little bit of background about Ronnie. He joined the Michigan National Guard as a junior from Fraser High School and finished infantry training at Fort Benning, Georgia. He served as an AGR soldier and worked as a medical NCO, battalion career counselor, professor, personnel special personnel service officer for the 125th uh, infantry and retired as a readiness NCO at um, in Lapeer out of Detroit. Since retiring, he's continued his service as the reserve component transition assistance advisor to the hundreds of thousands of veterans here in the state of Michigan. He has also served as a military liaison and hometown heroes coordinator for the Detroit Lions, while also serving as the vice president of the Michigan Heroes Museum in Frankenmuth, Michigan. On May 6th of 2021, he was named the military ambassador for the National Football League and military ambassador to the NFL Hall of Fame Behavioral Health Initiative by NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell in USA Today. He resides in Davison, Michigan with his wife, Angela, and his two children and two bonus children. Welcome back to the show, Ronnie. Thank you. That makes me sound so much more important than I ever <laughs> have felt. You are super that. important, Ronnie, super important. And, you know, we're, we're going to be having some, some really, I think, great conversations today and learning some history about some, some African-American veterans that you have showcased at your, your um, museum. But before we dive into that, I, I would be remiss if we didn't, um, you know, talk about Frank Beckman and the fact that he passed away last Saturday February 12th. You know, Ronnie, I know that you knew Frank a lot better than I did. I had an opportunity to be on his show a couple of times. You know, he awarded me the Women Who Lead Award in 2020, and that was great. And, and so to be able to have that time with him was wonderful. But can you tell us a little bit about Frank? I will tell you, you know, in, in the world that we live in, that's so divided, you know, Frank was very much, I guess you could say Frank was very, very conservative. He was very, very, on, you know, very much on the right. Uh, and his show was political. That's what he did. That's where he made his money. But the one thing that Frank Beckman, the beautiful thing about Frank is that you could disagree with him and still 
have such a tremendous amount of respect. And he, because he had that respect for you, if you disagreed with him and he was always learning and he was always adjusting his position. And he was just one of those really fluid guys. And, you know, it's unfortunate he was taken by uh, vascular dementia, which is a very, very aggressive form of Alzheimer's. And in, unfortunately he wasn't able to enjoy his retirement. Like I believe that he deserved, but he was such an amazing guy and so involved in the community. And I don't think there was anybody, the Navy SEALs have a, have a saying, it says, are you all in all the time? Because if you're not get out of the water and that all in all the time, was really what Frank embodied. He was that guy that if he felt passionately about something, he would jump right in and he would give everything he had to it. And it didn't matter what side of the aisle it was. I mean, he was friends with our governor. He was friends with Jocelyn Benson. He was friends with John James. You know, he was friends with everybody. And he was just such a unique soul. And he was an incredible reporter, started at a very young age, youngest, uh, youngest uh, news reporter in Michigan at the time at WJR. Um, and he did his show for 48 years and he was just an amazing guy. Uh, the city of Detroit was better for him. I am better because of knowing him and being associated with him and he's going to be deeply missed and, and it's, un, it, it's sad. Um, but wow, what a wonderful life to live. If I, if I could, if I could live half the experiences that he had, um, I think I would consider myself extraordinarily blessed. Well, he definitely left a legacy, and I appreciate you sharing a little bit about him. I know that he will be a loss to the WJR community as well as the Detroit community and those who listen to him uh, across the country, really. And so and, and, uh, I was honored to have him on my board of directors at the Michigan Heroes Museum. He loved he loved our military family here in Michigan and our veteran community. Um, it, that was a genuine love and a genuine heart. He did his first broadcast at the Michigan Heroes Museum on Veterans Day many, many years ago, and he would do that every year. And he just, he, 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 his money was where his mouth was. He, he really supported the veterans here in the state of Michigan, and he adored you. Oh, thanks. Well, he had a familiar voice. Uh, you couldn't, it was unmistakable. And, you know, we, we, we wish his family well um, as they, more in the loss of, you know, this, this great individual. And so, you know, we're talking about uh, loss and, you know, we're about to celebrate President's Day on Monday, you know, which is a federal holiday that is usually celebrated on the third Monday in February. And, you know, I, I think, you know, as I think about President's Day and I think about how it relates to um, Black History Month, you know, I think a lot of us, our minds go to President Lincoln, right? And, right. you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, which kind of, which was that catalyst and that kickstart to, to freedom for um, those who were living in slavery. And so, you know, uh, I love too how, how Lincoln and a lot of his legacy, not only was uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, but also um, the, the lasting impression he left to be able to be the catalyst for the creation of the Department of Veterans Affairs. No and veteran so, left behind. No veteran left behind. And, you know, that, you know, we as a nation should care for those who have borne the battle, you know, and their spouses and children. And so, and that's really the sentiment. I'm not quoting it directly, um, but uh, that's the sentiment of it. And, you know, we come back from this commercial break. We'll be talking a little bit more about that, but we'll also dive into really uh, hearing a little bit about, uh, the history of one of our uh, heroes here in Michigan 
and what he went through and, and how great it is that we don't have to deal with those things now. So stick around with us. We'll be right back on The Veterans Perspective. Welcome back to The Veterans Perspective. I'm speaking with Ronnie Cyrus, Vice President of the Michigan Heroes Museum, and we're talking about President's Day. We're talking about, uh, you know, Lincoln. And as I think about his quote, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish the just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Ronnie, what does that mean to you? What that means is I think, I, I think that actually he sums it up in a way that many of us fail to see. I think what he means is that regardless of our past, regardless of where we're going, let's always focus on being better, but let's use the American platform. Let's use the flag to as a healing blanket to heal our nation and to continue to grow and to heal from our wrongs. We're not perfect. And Abraham Lincoln, I think he really recognized the fact that it was going to be a long, long process. And I think back to, you know, what Black soldiers during World War II, for instance, what they went through and, and how we were united as a country, but still very, very much unequal. And imagine how far we came from 1865 to 1944, and then how far we came from 1944 to 1969. And uh, look, look at how far we've come in the last 50 years. It's really a testament to an ideal that I think Abraham Lincoln really understood. He really got. And I think he was way, way, way out in front of his time. Yeah, you know, I, I, I agree. And I also look at it as, you know, you know, and caring for veterans. I think it took a long time. And it's, you know, we're still a work in progress of people realizing that we're all created and equal in that sense. So it's, it's great to be able to see um, veterans being able to take advantage of the benefits that they fought for that were denied to them just because of the color of their skin. And, and you know, as we're talking about that, I would love to hear about the veteran that you, you know, you, you, that I would say inspires you and, and, and encourages you um, in, in, in your daily work at the, at the museum. And um, that is also, you know, one of our African-American veterans who maybe people don't know about. Can you tell and us I a little love, bit about him? And I, I love telling this story. And this story is about Lieutenant Charles L. Thomas. Uh, Charles Thomas was born in 1920, and he was born in Alabama. Uh, his family moved to Detroit at the time when the city's Black population was really growing. And as a child, uh, he was really bookish. He was really smart, really, you know, educated uh, himself and uh, through a family that really, really emphasized education. And in a world, in World War II, and he got, he, he ended up getting drafted to go to World War II. And in 1943, he ended up in Camp Hood, Texas, which is now Fort Hood. And he ended up being able to go to officer school in a time where there weren't many black officers in the United States at the time. And he actually, you know, they were trained and, and they were kind of set in the rear, you know, they were set in the rear and they were not really utilized the way that uh, their white counterparts were. And uh, finally they got their chance to, uh, finally they got their chance to go to Europe. 
And uh, in December, uh, he was in December of 1943, he was with the 614th and it was a uh, armor division. And he was injured in the arm. He had been shot up. He had what he had been through that day ended up saving hundreds of lives. And it was a story that was never told because in 1944, when this happened, you as an admin or as a commanding officer in a unit in the United States Army, you could not write a black soldier up for the Medal of Honor. And it took another 40 years through the, through the um, 1950s, 1960s, and everything that happened with America at the time and as they were growing, it wasn't until 1997 that Charles Thomas was given uh, his rightful due and was awarded the Medal of Honor by uh, President Clinton. It had originally been written up by President Reagan, but it still took another nine years for him to be recognized. And unfortunately, he wasn't um, he wasn't recognized with the Medal of Honor until several years after he passed away. But we think of men like Charles Thomas, who were in a world that was he gave everything he had. He gave his arm. He gave his he gave much of his life to this country, and wasn't exactly treated the best. And unfortunately, it took years and years and years to. To make up for that. And I don't think we ever really truly have. Uh, but those were the guys, the Charles Thomas, the Wally Triplets. Uh, Wally Triplet is my favorite story at the museum. Uh, Wally Triplet was the very first African-American to ever take the field to play in a professional football game. And he actually played for the Detroit Lions. He was awarded a scholarship to the University of Miami in 1945. And a month later, got a letter saying, sorry, we didn't realize you were a Negro. And that's how the letter stated it. He said, we didn't realize you were a Negro. We're withdrawing the scholarship. Well, Wally Triplett went on to pay for, play for Penn State, went on to play in the National Football League. He was the third African-American drafted, the first to ever take the field of play. And he was also the first NFL player to ever be drafted into the Army. And he ended up serving a year in, uh, in Europe during the Korean conflict. And he came back and played for the Chicago Cardinals at the time, which is now, you know, Chicago Cubs or Chicago Bears, sorry. Um, but here's a man that loved life and it didn't matter. And I think about the resolve of these, because I can call them great men because what they did was beyond excellent. It was beyond themselves. They were always focused on what can be better down the road, not what happened yesterday, but they focused on those transitional rules that refocusing, mm -hmm. using your network, letting go of the past. It's not always easy for a man who has been discriminated against. I unfortunately, I fortunately, I'm not bare say, I'm very proud that I've never had to deal with that kind of issue, but I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm a young white man who, who has learned from these stories and these examples. And what an honor to be able to tell these men's stories every single day. And those, there's a lot more than just two of those men in our museum. And we love telling those stories. Well, and I, I love hearing them. And I, I, you know, I know that our listeners love learning as well. And it's, it's fascinating to know that, that these stories of hero, heroic acts exist, but it's, it is unfortunate that we don't know that they exist widely enough. And so, you know, we need to continue telling these stories. We need to continue because we know that history can repeat itself. And if we're not talking about these things and having dialogue about these things and making sure that we are ensuring that, you know, the law surrounding veterans and, and people in general are not um, 
are not infringing on the right to be able to to serve in the, in, in your country and serve for your country as well and and be and I think recognized it's a, for that. I it, think that's what's important. Yeah. And I'm grateful for the testament of these men because it's because of what these men do in a world. And I go back to the World War II exhibit in New Orleans at the National World War II Museum that's united but unequal. And it was that that time period before and during and just after the civil rights where where many minorities in this country just the, the fight that they had and the struggle and the far focus and the forward movement. And to realize that 75 years later, 80 years later, um, we are a lot more equal today than we were 80 years ago. It doesn't mean that we don't have work to do. It's just wonderful, you know, Zanetta, that you and I are such good friends and that I just, I, I have so much respect for you. And, and nobody, if they see us hug in public, nobody, nobody shakes their head anymore. Nobody turns a side eye. And I think it's a testament to men like Charles Thomas and Wally Triplett and and their focus and what they've done that's just made us a better country. And that's what veterans of all across the spectrum have tried to do, I think, at one time or another with their signature on that dotted line. And yes, we want to continue to tell those stories every day. Well, you know, Ronnie, I appreciate you coming on to share the story. You know, if you want to learn more, I suggest that you uh, check out the Michigan Heroes Museum. And where can they find out more information on the web? Michigan Heroes Museum, michiganheroes.org. And we are located on Weiss Street in Frankenmuth. And you can ask anybody in town and they will point you in the direction of the uh, building that has the plane and tank in front of it behind Zenders. Well, thank you so much, Ronnie, for joining us today, for sharing this knowledge. We'll have to have you back about some more historical da data. So stick around with us. We'll be right back on the Veterans Perspective after this commercial break. Welcome back to the Veteran Perspective. We're joined by our final guest today, Lieutenant Commander Daryl Green, Chief of Staff of Police and Public Safety at Michigan State University. Lieutenant Commander Green graduated from Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania with a Bachelor of Arts Political Science in 1993. He earned a Master of Social Sciences Criminal Justice from MSU in East Lansing, Michigan, and is a Doctor of Philosophy Public Administration from Western Michigan University, Kalamazoo. He honorably served in, as an enlisted active duty tour on board USS Theodore Roosevelt and with the reserves at the Naval Air Station, Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. He accepted a Naval Direct Commission Officer appointment in December, 2010. He also mobilized with the U.S. Naval Forces Central Command for Operations Inherent Resolve and Enduring Freedom, where he served as Chief of Counterterrorism Struggle Against Violent Extremism, Cell and Lead Information Warfare Officer. That is a mouthful. Uh, Green is currently employed as the Chief of Staff for the Michigan State University Police Department, amongst all of the other things he has done. <laughs> he retired as Chief of Police for the Lansing Police Department in 2021. He's a graduate of the FBI National Academy, Senior Management Institute of Policing, Police Executive Research Forum, Michigan State University School of Staff and Command and many other executive leadership trainings. Green's military decorations include the Navy Commendation Medal, Navy and Marine Corps uh, Achievement Medal and various campaign and unit awards. He is married with three children and resides in Holt, Michigan. That is some bio, welcome to the show. Lieutenant thank Commander very, Green. <laughs> thank you very much, Director Adams. Uh, much appreciated. Happy to be aboard. Thank you. 
And I just want to make sure, do you want me to call you Lieutenant Commander or do you want me to call you Daryl? What do you, what, how, where do you want this to go? Because you have so many titles. I, I, I prefer Daryl. Okay. Perfectly fine with me. Well, the listeners will probably know I'm going to, I'm going to, I will say Daryl, but I'm going to kind of tread lightly. You know, it seems like you have so many credentials. I, I don't want to get in trouble. So uh, <laughs> this month, seriously, you know, as we're talking about Black History Month, first of all, I just want to say how impressive um, a resume you have and all the work and the, the things you've been able to do in the community um, has, is, is really impressive. So first and foremost, I just want to thank you for your service in the many areas that you've served. It's, it's, it's really wonderful. Thank you very much. Uh, it's certainly been a honor of a lifetime to serve my country and to serve in the United States Navy. And, you know, I went into the Navy straight out of high school, enlisted at 17 years, years old. And really, you know, I think the, the Navy has been, you know, a, a critical foundation piece for me. And so uh, it's been a, a lifetime of happiness serving in the United States Navy. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I, I will forgive you because you have all these accolades and I served in the army. And so it's really funny. Uh, I always think about the Navy and the Air Force and the Marines. And somebody asked me recently, they're like, well, why did you join? Why'd you pick the army? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm a strategic thinker. So I was like, you know, if I'm in a plane in the Air Force then and I get shot down, I probably won't make it. If I'm in a submarine in the Navy, you know, and that gets hit, I, I don't swim very well. And, you know, Marines, they're just, they're really out there. So I figured, you know, I could dig a ditch, you know, blend in like a tree in the Army and, and <laughs> survive an attack if I needed to. So, but truly, truly impressive. I know the Navy has... Um, a lot of technical jobs and a lot of, uh, you have to do a lot of things technically. So you have to have that kind of mind. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know what it was like in the Navy. I know what it was like in the military as a woman, but you know, you've, you've climbed this ladder. How did you do that? And, and I know people want to know, how did you do that um, while maintaining, uh, knowing that you wanted everything to be equal, but sometimes it's not. Well, you know, I, I think this, and I, I think about, you know, uh, walking, you know, through the threshold and swearing in uh, 17 years of age and uh, really just trying to navigate, you know, a new world. And, you know, I think one of the things I was able to do was just to be flexible and adaptable, uh, you know, to the, to the processes of the Navy uh, and the military as a whole. And for me, uh, just making sure that I took accountability for my actions uh, was key and critical uh, in, you know, trying to pursue any type of success, you know, being accountable to myself and uh, working hard. And, you know, I had some key people uh, throughout my career uh, that were great mentors uh, that really gave me you know, insight into areas I hadn't even crossed over to. So for me, uh, the Navy has been, you know, just a strong foundation and uh, providing me the necessary support to uh, pursue any type of success. And I'm pretty happy about that. Did you ever feel, you know, while you were in the Navy that maybe you didn't progress as fast as you wanted or to the places that you wanted because of the color of your skin? You know what, I, I tell you this, uh, when I was enlisted and I was in, I think I was in year two of a, a four year active duty assignment and 
I had told a, um, a lieutenant at the time that I wanted to be an officer. And um, he just kind of chuckled and laughed at me. And, and he said, well, you're too old. And I said, I'm 19 years old, I'm too old to be an officer. <laughs> and uh, he just kind of chuckled and laughed like, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of past for you. And I said, well, I want to be an officer and that's probably something I'm going to pursue. And I made the decision right then and there that I was going to go to college and at least get a degree because uh, I felt that um, he sort of belittled me and uh, basically told me I couldn't do it. And uh, that's, you know, I've had that experiences at, at key points in my life. And uh, probably the most recent experience I had, I, I got my doctoral degree in 2013 and I had a professor uh, that was on my dissertation. He was my dissertation chairman and he basically told me, he says, hey, you got a great police career, uh, but I, I just don't think that this is for you. And for me, that has always been the fuel uh, to prove people wrong. Mm -hmm. And so those things kind of came at, you know, the, those feelings of belittlement kind of came at critical points in my life. Uh, you know, like I said, year two in the Navy, I got that experience and I started taking classes uh, correspondence classes in the Navy, and I was able to, you know, get out of the Navy active duty uh, and get my degree fairly quick. And so for me, it's always been to challenge uh, those, those feelings of belittlement or that, hey, you can't do it. And I've seen other people that look like me do it as well. And I said, hey, I can do it. And so that's been motivation. Yeah, you know, you you reminded me that that is something I think that a lot of people here and maybe they don't, they don't talk about it, but you know, me even going into the military as a woman and people are like, that's going to be too hard. You can't do that. And so I'm like, all right, that's what I'm going to do then. <laughs> like now I'm resolute in it because you said I couldn't do it. And, and so, you know, you can't go to law school with six kids at home and, 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 and do well. Okay. Well, I'm going to do that too. And, and I'm going to graduate, you know, with honors. And, and so, you know, being motivated and, and sometimes those things which they can be hurtful at the time are definitely motivating and it, it seems like you've shown that throughout your career and and I'm looking forward to talking more about that and so you know you transitioned into being a police officer was that because of the work that you did as far as um, in the Navy or was that just a totally different career path? I think it was a totally different career path for me I had you know graduated from college and um, I was uh, just looking for something else. And um, I wanted to serve the community and I came out to Michigan. I was in Philadelphia at the time. I came out to Michigan to go to graduate school and uh, I was uh, pretty broke. And so an opportunity presented itself uh, uh, for a policing job. And I thought that I could just be a police officer for a couple years and finish grad school and uh, move on. But I fell in love with it. But, you know, it's a great opportunity, and I was happy that I was able to embrace it, and I owe it to the Navy. Well, you know what? We're going to continue the story. We're going to talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing now and even some of the DEI initiatives that you have right after the commercial break. So we'll be right back on The Veterans Perspective. Welcome back to the Veterans Perspective, presented by the Michigan Veterans Affairs Agency. 
Now, your host, director of the MVAA, Sonetta Adams. Welcome back to the Veterans Perspective. We're talking with uh, Lieutenant Commander Daryl Green, uh, who has served in the Navy. He's, you know, done so many great things. He was Chief of Police of Lansing. Now he's working with MSU Safety and just just has an amazing story. So, you know, we were just talking before the commercial break about, um, you know, your, you know, what led you to the police department. And, and so how long did you serve in that role and, and how fulfilling was that? Well, for me, it was very fulfilling. Uh, so I served uh, with the Lansing Police Department for 24 and a half years, started as a patrol officer, uh, kind of moved up. I was a sergeant, a lieutenant, uh, captain, I was in charge of uh, every unit you can imagine from investigations to patrol division to administrative staff, the jail, you name it, I did it, internal affairs. Uh, and so for me, it was just a great opportunity uh, to really engage in just the world of policing, which is very diverse, it could be very complex. And so I was able to you know, move up throughout the department and I was able to uh, use some of the critical skills that I've developed in the United States Navy and uh, certainly in the reserves. And it was just an honor to uh, move up in the police department and stay in the reserves at the same time. So I'm happy that the city of Lansing allowed me to do it. And I retired in uh, June of 2021 and moved over to Michigan State University's Police and Public Safety Department and now I'm the chief of staff, I'm senior advisor to the vice president of public safety. And it's certainly been an honor and I'm doing uh, a lot of work in DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion, and also accessibility in there as well. And so we're running a host of different programs, a lot of community outreach, uh, reaching out uh, to the public and certainly been an honor uh, to serve in this capacity as well. You know, you know, you, you're serving as a police officer or you, you did serve as a police officer for 24 years. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I think about now that I wish I had asked my my dad, who um, he was a Vietnam era veteran. He passed away at the end of 2020, but he was a chief of police in Illinois uh, for uh, he retired as a chief of police. And, you know, one of the things I wonder is, you know, I served you served in the military. Um, you are a police officer, but at some point you take off the uniform and you're just a regular citizen. And so how does that, you know, I, I, you know, I always wonder, you know, how do you deal with the issues that come against you as a black male um, after you take the uniform off, knowing that you've done so much for the community and the country? How, how, do, how do you handle that? You know what? It, it's tough. I, I, I tell you that, and I'm sure your dad experienced it as, as well, is that uh, it's hard to take the uniform off uh, because wherever you go, uh, someone recognizes you, knows that you're a police officer, uh, specifically if you're a chief of police at that particular mm -hmm. town. So it's nonstop. And, you know, I had people asking me all types of questions in church. I've, I've changed churches multiple times. Just going to the grocery store sometimes is a lengthy experience because people want to ask you about issues in their particular community. It can be very difficult. And particularly when uh, there's some controversial viral video uh, <laughs> that goes on and it could have happened, you know, a thousand miles away somewhere in California, Washington state. However, you know, the community tends to lump 
uh, all police officers and police agencies under one umbrella. And that can be very challenging, particularly for an African-American uh, chief. And, you know, I've been called the Uncle Tom. I've been called, hey, you're a traitor. I've gone through all of those motions. But at the same time, I have uh, been able to get into some communities that some of my white counterparts as chief of police and, and you know, high chief uh, leadership positions weren't able to get into because uh, I'm an African-American male. So there's benefits, there's pros and cons, and you just have to make sure you're navigating, uh, you know, those processes uh, to benefit your community as best you can, and also take care of yourself and your family in that as well. So uh, the work-life balance is, is definitely uh, a viable uh, opportunity to try to debrief from some of those issues and concerns throughout the community. What tips would you give veterans who um, may be dealing with situations just because of the color of their skin when they're outside of the community that they live in? So people don't know them. They don't know that they've served. They don't know that they may have, you know, be a decorated veteran or, you know, any of those other things. What, what kind of tips would you give for them to deal with some of those issues they may encounter? Well, I think that you have to have someone that you can uh, debrief with, uh, to decompress with, uh, whether that's a therapist, whether that's a pastor, a preacher, a chaplain, uh, you have to have an, uh, an outlet uh, to get some of this stuff off. If not, you're going to take it back to the home. Uh, and so uh, for me, I was able to uh, use some of those processes uh, to really benefit me and my family. I mean, you have to think about you know, and I tell this to uh, some of my employees and subordinates that you have to look at the person as the employee, as a person. And so they have, you know, uh, mind, body um, experiences that they need to adjust to, uh, make sure that they're taken care of. Uh, and so, you know, those are just critical issues. You have to uh, have, you know, a list of uh, strategies to make sure you're taking care of yourself and your body and your mind and you know your spirituality and so forth. And so that's the key, having some type of balance. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think, you know, looking at people as people who are we're all flawed in some way. And however they came at you today is something that they have to deal with and 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 work out that's not your issue and take, you know, not taking it on as as your issue, right? So I mean, that is a great, great point. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned something um, before we wrap up, you mentioned something about DEI, and I know we hear about diversity, equity, and inclusion all the time, but, um, you know, why is that so important for us to, to kind of look through that lens on a regular basis? Yeah, I think it's very important. And because, first of all, you know, uh, I'll tell you this story, because I just had this conversation, and it was that, Oftentimes, there's DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion trainings that uh, were mandated to attend. And they're often the trainings that people don't want to attend. And so I think you should probably think about that in the reverse, uh, opposite, excuse me. And because it really gives you an opportunity. Uh, diversity, first off, is so complex. We're all diverse in some capacity whether you're, you're Jewish, you're white, you know, black, I mean, whether you're LGBTQ+, I mean, we're all diverse in some capacity. For me, 
um, making people feel included uh, in your sphere of leadership is uh, the most valuable thing you can do as a leader uh, to make sure all of your subordinates' voices are heard. The inclusion part of it uh, is just, you know, that itself will affect someone's uh, work-life balance. Uh, if you don't feel like you're part of the team, you're not gonna contribute. You're not gonna be effective and efficient. And so for me, diversity, equity, and inclusion are just fundamental things and you know, treating people fairly. Uh, and you know, I also mentioned the accessibility piece and that's a whole nother piece that uh, people haven't fully addressed, DEIA, uh, that you know, is the new, uh, you know, horizon for all of us to address to. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And we do have a lot of disabled veterans, family members and caregivers out there. So looking at how we can make sure we're addressing those issues is, is great. And, and so I, you know, I wish we had more time, you know, it was so great to talk with you and learn about what's going on in your realm and the great tips that you provided. I, I just want to take a moment to thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much, uh, Director Adams, and uh, Michigan State University is always hiring, so please tell your <laughs> constituents. I will do that. We'll make sure that they go to your website. And I also want to take a moment to thank Ronnie Cyrus of the Michigan Heroes Museum for joining us today. Remember, you can always reach us at 1-800-MICHFIT. That's 1-800-642-4838. Or if you're struggling, call the Veterans Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255-PRESS-1. We're always here to serve. We can provide you with the resources you learn more about today. We hope to see you next week on the Veterans Perspective. Take care. <laughs>